0: about children and salvation. I'm going to try to answer some of these questions. Do little children, do infants go to heaven when they die? What about aborted babies? In our nation we are aborting, killing thousands of unborn babies every year. Do they go to heaven? Should we baptize our infants? Why don't we baptize infants in our church? Are young children accountable for their sins? Who is accountable for their sins? How do you become accountable? When do you become accountable? We're going to look at, try to answer these questions from the Word of God today. And uh, you may be saying, well, I don't have children. Well, I bet you were a child one time though, right? So what I want to share is you well, this is what the process that's happened in your life and where you are today. And you can sort of see what the Bible says about that. And many of you have children, grandchildren. You've had these questions. We're going to see what the Bible says. I want to begin, though, before we look at the Word of God, to sort of get an overview of some different answers to these questions. These are questions that Christians disagree about, have different answers on. So I want to th- share with you three major Uh, perspectives on this. First of all, the Roman Catholic perspective is that children, infants, inherit the original sin of Adam and the condemnation and the guilt that goes with it. And so their answer would be that little children are under condemnation because of inheriting that original sin. And so because of that doctrine, uh, Roman Catholics developed the pro, uh, procedure of, of baptizing uh, infants. Nothing in the historical record before two hundred AD still not widespread at four hundred a d but sometime in the Middle Ages became the practice, and their belief was in or is in baptismal regeneration. that is, the actual baptizing of that infant removes that guilt and condemnation and provides salvation for that infant. So as long as somebody presents the child and the priest administers it, then that baptism, baptismal regeneration, means that baptism actually regenerates you. The act of baptism brings about salvation apart from from the knowledge of the child. And so they would say that unbaptized infants, if you don't bring your infant uh, to be baptized, that unbaptized infants, if they die go to Limbo, a place called Limbo, that has not the punishment of hell, but not the rewards and joys of heaven, sort of an in-between place called Limbo. So that's the Roman Catholic uh, answer to those questions that I've posed. And then the second view on these questions I want to share with you would be the the Lutheran view. Uh, And... 500 years ago this year, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther initiated the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther, a Catholic monk, wanted to reform the Catholic Church. He had been studying Galatians and Romans and he came to some different conclusions, tried to reform the Catholic Church, didn't accept the Reformation. That's where Protestants originated. That's where we originated. We are the the fruit of Protestantism uh, 500 years ago, 1517. And so Martin Luther recovered the biblical doctrine of justification by the grace of God alone through faith alone. That is that sacraments or any works would not produce salvation administered to us, but that salvation is a gift of God by the grace of, of God alone received through faith alone, and we share that same uh, foundation and that same belief, but th- you would think then the logical implication of that would be well then then you don 't baptize infants because they can 't have faith in God but Do you know that change comes hard to folks? And so it was hard for them to move from that. And so Martin Luther, even though he recovered that justification by faith, couldn't let go of infant baptism. And so still continued that, and Lutherans do today. And so um, how do you reconcile that? Justifications by faith, but an infant can't have faith, and one of two answers was and is given by Lutherans. Martin Luther said, well, maybe that faith is unconscious in the child, and God knows who's going to have faith later on, and uh, your, your faith doesn't disappear when you go to sleep, right? So he said, maybe that, that faith is like that, Martin Luther said in that child, sort of an unconscious faith that would come to flowering later on, and God knows who that would be. Or, the other answer given by Lutherans is that the faith of parents substitutes for the faith of the child and the faith of parents when they bring that child uh, to be baptized, uh, then the child is justified by faith, but it's the substitute faith of the parents. So that's the the second uh, view, and we're greatly indebted to Lutherans uh, for that recovery of justification by faith. But the third view is that of Baptists. And there are others, but these are three major views from which most others have forked off from. And the view of Baptists was, who came just a little bit later, the fruit of the Reformation in the next century, in the early 1600s, Baptists said, wait a minute, if, if we're justified by faith alone, then we, we don't need to baptize infants because they can't have that faith. So Baptists took the reformation to what we consider its logical conclusion but were called the radical reformers because that was more radical but baptists saw it as the logical conclusion of the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone infants can't have faith and so there's no need for us to baptize infants and so the answer is why we don't baptize infants in our church is because the Bible uh, doesn't say to do so. So the early Baptists, the first Baptists were all Episcopalians, or English Anglicans, we'd call them Episcopalians, and they had all been sprinkled as children. And they, be, they were Christians, but they came to see that that baptism was not the biblical pattern of baptism, so they were baptized again as believers. And so the first Baptist that we know of, John Smith, had nobody to baptize him, came to this biblical conclusion, so he baptized himself. Whoosh, whoosh. And then he baptized the other folks in his church, and it became the first Baptist church. Church. And they were all the first Baptists were all rebaptized. They had all um, been sprinkled, but they then came to see that although they were Christians, they needed that confirmation of baptism. And, and so, let me show you in Scripture that w- what we see Scripture to say is that all baptism in the New Testament is believers' baptism. Believers' baptism. There are households that were baptized in the New Testament. That is whole families. And we're going to have families baptized tonight in our baptism at the lake. We're going to have some families, and that's great. But in the family baptisms in the New Testament, each individual in that family has faith in Jesus Christ. So it's great for a family to be baptized together, or for children, as long as those children are old enough to put their faith in Christ. Let me show you one example of that. Acts chapter 16, verse 30, is the example of the Philippian jailer, Uh, who he and his family came to faith in Christ and were baptized. Acts 16.30, he uh, asked Paul, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do you have to do to be saved? Well, Paul answers, verse 31, they, Paul and Silas replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You know how to be saved today? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household, so if you believe, you'll be saved. And if your household believes, then your household will be saved as well. So the next verse says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So you see, all of them were able to, old enough and able to hear the word. He spoke the word to them and to all in his house because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In in verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So you see, that's the pattern throughout the Bible. The Bible never tells us of baptizing infants. It always speaks of those who are believers being baptized. And so an example is a missionary, Adoniram Judson, and his wife, Nancy, who were Congregationalists and who were sent as missionaries to India. But in 1812, it took a long time to get from the United States to India on a ship. And while he was on a ship, Adoniram Judson had been translating the New Testament from Greek. And he worked on that throughout the voyage. And as he translated the New Testament and studied it, he came to see that every baptism in the New Testament was by, of a believer. Saw passages like this in Acts 16:31, Became convinced that, that he was wrong and Baptists were right and he got to India and asked to be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ and became one of the first Baptist missionaries. Didn't go over well with the Congregationalists, but had to find new support. But, so that's, what happened. that's how early Baptists came about. Alright, then what about little children? What happens to little children? If we're not going to baptize them, if we don't believe that baptism will procure their salvation, because salvation is by the grace of God through faith alone Are little children accountable for their sin? And I believe the answer for that is no. Let me show you some passages in Romans. Romans speaks to this. Romans 5.13. Let me read verses 12 and 13. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So there is that act of Adam who disobeyed God and sinned and brought the fall and then all of us, yes, we have been affected by that. And so we don't believe little children are innocent like Adam. We believe little children are sinful and that we all have that sin nature of Adam. If you don't believe in the sinfulness of all people, go see Melissa Todd and volunteer to work in preschool For a couple of Sundays, then come back and tell me if you believe in the sinfulness of all people or not. Just work with two-year-olds, or or come, let me send you my grandkids for a couple of days, and you take them home, and then come back and tell me if you believe in the sinfulness of children or not. We've all inherited that sinful nature. You see it in toddlers, don't you? You see that innate selfishness, self-centeredness. They're precious, they're beautiful, they're wonderful. And they're sinners. And that's what this verse says. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And so tragically, all of us die. And if little babies get a disease or little babies' organs are not functioning, they die. That's the curse of Adam. We have physical death to all people. But the next verse, verse 13 says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. So that sinfulness of young children is not charged against their account until... Till there is law. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. But it means until they understand the commandments of the law. You see that verse there? Sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Now move to Romans chapter 7, verse 7. And Paul continues to talk about this matter of the law. And he says in Romans 7... Uh, Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Paul's been talking about the Old Testament law, the Old Testament commandments, and how it can't save us. And so now he feels a little bit of a need to defend the law because people are going to say, well, you can't save us, what in the world did God give it to us for in the Old Testament? Why did he spend all that time in the Old Testament on the law? So Paul's defending the law. What shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. The law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead." So he's saying here that the function of the law in the process of salvation is partly to reveal our sinfulness and even to arouse our sinfulness and define our sinfulness. Now, that's common sense. You know that's true. If you were walking down the the hall of our church and you passed by a series of doors that were closed, you wouldn't think about, I'm going to look in here and see what's in there. But if you're walking down the hall in our church, and on one of the doors is a sign that says, do not enter, no one permitted, entry forbidden, what would you think? I wonder what's behind that door. Why don't they want me in that door? I think I'll look and see why. The, you, know, you see how the law defines your sinfulness, arouses your sinfulness. He talks about coveting. He says, when the, when the commandment do not covet came, then that's when it aroused covetousness in me. Again, with your children. If you don't think this is true, take one of your your kids home, especially if you have young children, go in a room with an object they've never shown any interest in before: a vase, a flower pot, a button on a piece of equipment, whatever, and you set them down and say, You're not to ever touch this. You're not to go near this. You can touch, play anything else in this room, but don't touch this object. You go home, try that experiment. What's going to happen? Eventually, their curiosity—they're going, going to be gravitated like a moth to a flame to that, right? Because we have a sinful nature and commandments define, reveal, and arouse our sinfulness. That's what this is said. All right, here's the key verse. If you only get one verse in this sermon, get Romans 7, 9, this next verse. This is the one that's going to help you understand about your children, the process in your own life of what has happened and what is happening. Here it is. Romans 7, verse 9. Once I was alive, apart From the law. Paul is speaking autobiographically of himself, but it's true of every one of us. It's universally true. Once I was alive apart from the law. When is he talking about there? Paul is talking about when he was a child before the law came to him. Now the law had been around, of course, for thousands of years, but the law had not come to Paul until he heard it, understood it, and could grasp the limits and the restrictions of it, Right? Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came. So once I was alive, apart from the law, Paul was a sinner. Paul would die physically. You and I are sinners as little children. We'll die physically. But the full impact of Adam's curse, the guilt and condemnation is latent. It's there, but it is not actualized. It is not fully there until the commandment comes to define, arouse, that law, that sin. So once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, that is Paul as a young Jewish boy at his bar mitzvah learned the law, you at some time learned the Ten Commandments or you were taught by your parents right from wrong or you, you grew to a point in your moral development where you understood right and wrong and what the will of God was and you chose not the will of God, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. That spiritual death became fully operational in Paul's life, it becomes fully operational in your life. When you know right from wrong and you're clearly crossing God's standards and rebelling against him, the commandment has come to you and sin, which was there in your life, which you've always been a sinner and shown that sinful nature, but now sin springs to life. Or think about a weed growing and it's been growing all along but suddenly it comes to flower with its poisonous fruit and its seeds that it drops everywhere. That's what happens. Sin springs to life and spiritual death is fully realized in your life, and you're accountable. Verse 13, another verse on down this same passage, says it this way, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Oh, I don't you have that verse up there. That's verse 11. Let me get verse 13. Uh, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Comes a time in your life, in the development of your children, grandchildren, when sin becomes utterly sinful. That is, when the commandment comes, when there's a full understanding of, of right and wrong, and the limits that God has set, and beyond those limits is rebellion against God, then sin either springs to life, verse 9 says, and you die, or verse 13 says sin, which is there, becomes utterly sinful. And when sin becomes utterly sinful, you're accountable, you're spiritually dead, you're lost, you're headed to hell, you need a savior, because sin's always been there, but now it has sprung to life, it is fully operational. When does that happen in the life and development of an individual? Well, obviously there is no set age because we develop differently. For developmentally challenged adults, it may never come that age of accountability. And there are people who live all their lives and they don't come to that age of accountability. Sin has not become utterly sinful because they lack that full capacity to understand the implications of right and wrong. For most people, it comes sometime in the development of a child or a teenager, we begin evangelism in our vacation Bible school with third graders about age nine. Because morally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, that's the beginning, we think, of that awareness. Now, certainly some can, can come to that earlier um, and and you, know, you know, Cindy saved at age six, but Cindy's strange. And, I mean, special in a lot of ways uh, there. Uh, so I would encourage you if you have younger children, uh, it's best if you can delay their baptism. Let them pray and receive Christ. Rejoice with them, but delay that baptism because they're okay. And we want this to be a lifelong commitment that they'll remember, understand, not a decision, but a discipleship that will follow through. So, do infants and children go to heaven when they die? And I believe the answer is yes. Let me show you an Old Testament illustration from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 39. In the Old Testament, God delivered the Israelites out of bondage and slavery in Egypt to lead them to a promised land. That's analogous to our experience as a believer in that we, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, have been set free from the bondage of sin and we're delivered, we're going to a promised land. Amen? They got to the edge of that promised land though and most of them did not have enough faith to enter. It takes faith to receive the gift of God by grace through faith. And so, All of the adults said, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. No, God said, I'm giving you this land. Only Caleb and Joshua were the only two adults who had faith. And so they were the only two who got to go into the promised land because the gifts of God are received by faith. But God said, you're going to die in the desert because of your lack of faith but your kids are going to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 139, in that context says, And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not know good from bad, they will enter the land, I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. And I think that's analogous to the experience of of children today is that those who do not know good from bad. The adults were accountable for their unbelief. The children were still sinful, still with a sinful nature, but sin had not become utterly sinful. Sin had not sprung to life in them, and so they were not accountable, and their generation, when they grew up, would go into that promised land. Now, I believe that's true of aborted babies, I believe that a person becomes a person at conception and those unborn children are, are, are people, they're human. Are bills now before legislators about there good evidence that at 20 weeks they experience pain and so uh, the bills and legislatures across our country is forbidding abortion up to that uh, before that 20th uh, week. They're, they're individuals, and I believe they go to heaven when they die. Now, does this principle then of accountability apply to adults who have not heard the Ten Commandments and not heard about Jesus? Maybe all of them go to heaven because we just said where there is no law, then sin is not accountable. Well, then what about people who have not heard about the 10 commandments or not heard about Jesus do they go in the answer is no it would it would seem maybe that's an extension of this principle and okay children don't so probably those who haven't heard don't the answer is no they are accountable The Bible clearly says it in Romans 1 and 2 that we'll look at. And what the Bible says is they don't have the law of the Bible, but they have two other books of the law, the book of nature and the book of conscience. And the law is written in the heavens and it's written on our hearts. And so we have sufficient revelation to be accountable because we know right from wrong from our conscience and we know accountability to God from the heavens. Let me show you two passages Quickly, That's a whole other subject, but I want to just mention it for a moment uh, so that you can see it in Romans chapter uh, 1 and 2. Romans 1 verse 18 through 20 says, "...the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth for the, by their wickedness, uh, since what may be known about God's plan is plain to them." Because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what's been made so that people are what? Without excuse. So even if you don't have the book of the Ten Commandments to know God's limits and His guidelines, you have, first of all, the book of nature. And it doesn't give a complete picture. don't know everything. We've got to have the Bible, of course. But it gives us enough so that we are without excuse. Then the other book is the book of your conscience. In Romans 2 is about this subject. And I'll read Romans 2, 14 through 15. Indeed, when Gentiles, non-Jews, who do not have the law, okay, do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Verse 13, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. And so we also have that revelation of our conscience. Not full revelation, we need the Bible, but it's enough to hold us accountable. So children... It's not a matter where you heard the gospel or how. It's whether you've got to that point in your life whether you can understand right and wrong. So adults, so let me say most of us here today, teenagers, older teenagers at least, adults, we're accountable to God, certainly adults. So you and I are accountable. You've had enough revelation that you won't be able to say, I, I'm without excuse. So let, we talked about the bad news. Let's don't end there. What are we going to do about this accountability thing? Let's at least spend a moment today telling you the good news of Jesus Christ. After Romans 7, which talks about accountability, comes Romans 8. He's still on the subject of our relationship to the law, but here's the good news. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, there's a bigger law than the law of the book. The law of the Spirit gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in his. Flesh. And so the good news is you don't have to be under condemnation. You don't have to go to hell. The bad news is, most of you here are accountable. The good news is nobody has to be condemned. If you'll put your faith in Christ Jesus, then He who became sin for you can give you freedom from condemnation and guilt. And give you eternal life that begins now and lasts throughout heaven. Would you bow your heads with me? I wonder if you want to pray for somebody in this prayer moment. I wonder if you have a kid, a grandkid, a teenager that you want to know will be in heaven. And you want to pray for them right now. Maybe you've got little children who are not anywhere near accountable yet. Wouldn't you want to begin to pray for them that as the flowering of their life takes place, that they'll hear and believe and understand the good news? And would you want to pray for yourself? I wonder if you are here today and you've trusted in anything other than the grace of God and your faith to save you. Salvation's by the grace of God through faith. If you've never heard this before, if you've, you've done other religious things but you've never done this, would you right now say, dear God... I'm a sinner. I confess that. I believe in Jesus. Save me. Jesus, come into my life and cleanse me. I don't want to go to hell. I want to accept your forgiveness. I want to be a different person. Would you pray that right now? Oh, God, hear our prayers. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sins, but that you loved us so much that you gave your only son that we could have no condemnation. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand together with me? We're going to have a time of invitation. If you want to accept Christ as Savior, if you prayed that prayer, want to be baptized tonight at the lake or next month here at the church or whatever, would you come forward and say, I I want to be a follower of Jesus. We'll pray with you and help you and rejoice with you. Maybe you need a church home. We'll invite you to come join our church family. Let's sing together.